this problem does not belong to you like your personal property. This is a community thing. So therefore, part of your job as leader is to activate the community to address this thing, right? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Colleen Wilcox, teaching is the greatest form of optimism. My guest today, Dr. Abdul Malik Mohammed, has been serving both youth and adults as an educator, transformational leader, entrepreneur, and author for almost three decades. He's currently the founder and CEO of Akuben, a professional development company, and Transforming Lives, Inc., a provider of alternative education services. In his career, he's launched 18 schools and specialized programs, led a staff of 2,400 across 11 states, and spoken on leadership and community building in four different continents. Malik, welcome back to the Elevate podcast. Uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, man. It's been a minute. <laughs> well, I was going to say it's been a pandemic, so we'll talk about that. <laughs> you were episode number five on the podcast. We talked a lot about your personal background. I really encourage people to go listen to that, but our audio quality, I think I said I was doing on an attic at the time. I like running these ones, but I was like, we got to talk to Malik again. <laughs> we stepped up the quality here. So it has been so long. I find it interesting to ask people the question like, What's changed the most for you or maybe not changed since this global pandemic that we had? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. That's a good start in. Yeah, I think what has not changed, but has evolved, right? It's nuanced and sort of gained complexity is this idea that we're all just really trying to find a journey through our humanity, right? Like it's this idea of we're trying to find a tribe, trying to find belonging, And what the pandemic did for a lot of us was really break that in some ways, where we were forced to confront some things with ourselves and others that we weren't really, you know. But I think it also, for others, it really opened up the opportunity for us to clarify some things that make more sense. So I think that did for me as well, right? So I, what has changed is that I've stepped back a bit from doing more direct work to do more writing, more thinking, more strategizing around what I want to do and contribute and be in the world, I think. You mentioned that word that it's interesting. There are a lot of these books popping up now. I read Sebastian Younger's book. I haven't read Tim Urban's new book is actually on sort of, I think the struggles we're facing with tribalism, but what is it about events like this or that sort of kind of force us back into this? We have a lot of biological systems like fight or flight, a lot of things that we don't need anymore, but like we still haven't outgrown them, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I like when we start talking about sort of survival brain and what happens when our amygdala is activated, our prefrontal cortex. Yeah, it was supposed to be for a bear and we're using it for like, I'm annoyed that my cleaning lady is not here. I'm stressed, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) And our brain can't distinguish, right? But like when we're in survival brain, right, between the bear and our cleaning lady, right? But the most common ones, fight, flight, or freeze, right? But then there's also fawn, right? But then the one I really like is flock, right? That what we find is when that's activated, we flock together. And and I think that we see that sort of constantly, whether it's adults, children, et cetera, that, that people are often flocking together. Sometimes for good, right? Sometimes mob mentality, but I think that that's a biological response as well, finding safety. But then there's a fear of being thrown out if you go against the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And the shame that exists, right? When you're not in right standing in the community. And that's what's, you know, a lot of this work that we do in restorative practices is really around shame. And how do we navigate shame? Because shame is a powerful thing. It's not not holy and and all-consuming bad. I think that that is a common understanding of shame. But I would say that we don't want to live in a world without shame. What shame does is indicate that something is a gap between expectations. And so when we belong to a group, a political view, an identity, a community, and we're not in right standing because we hold a different perspective or whatever else, shame shows up. And if we're not able to reconcile that shame effectively in healthy ways in the community, then we will be stigmatized and canceled and thrown out, even if still there and and literally, I guess. 
Right. And are we afraid of that? Again, it feels like, look, if you were thrown out a thousand years ago, you were dead, right? So you developed some of these systems and is it the shame of being thrown out or is it, do you think it's still some of these, we're running some of these biological processes of it, like it's really dangerous to be exiled from the group and dissenting with a group in any way is what could cause that. Yeah. And I think it speaks to, yeah, it's probably both and all of those things, right? Like it's the concern, the fear about being thrown out. I think it's also true what John Brathwaite says. He wrote uh, Shame, Crime and Reintegration, where he talks about that stigmatizing shame creates outcasts. Those outcasts also continue to have this deep sense of belonging and need, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sense of belonging. So what happens they find other outcomes. They find each other, yeah. Right? And, <laughs> and when it's socially unacceptable, it's called a gang, right? When it's not, it's called the Rotary Club, right? Or whatever, right? So, <laughs> so, so that's what we have, right? And what we have found is it is extremely difficult without punishment, probably leading ultimately to oppression, to hold groups that you have outcasts to social norms that you deem to be appropriate because they are isolated, they're outcasts, right? So the only way to bring people into social normal behavior is that they have to belong. They've got to be a part of the community. This is true for, I think, any organization, any team. How do you share values, but have a wide range of, these are our common threads, but outside of these threads, we're going to be divergent. I had this discussion with someone this morning. I read a lot about... Gen Z talking about, well, I want to work at a company where they really agree with the things that I agree with and the things that are important to me and otherwise. And I'm thinking to my, and generally that viewpoint is from someone of a little more of the progressive, you know, viewpoint. And so I'm thinking, well, that to me feels very antithetical with inclusion. (laughs) You want to share value, but how can everyone have the same opinion of you or the company on everything? Don't you need a bunch of different opinions and stuff in the company? And so this is, I think we're stuck in a lot of different groups and stuff in a chicken and egg game around this where we want inclusion and diversity. So you have to have some common thread about why those people are there. But then how do you have a tolerance level within that? I mean, I think that's a great question. And I don't... If you could answer that, everything would be good in the world. So Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't want to pretend like I've got that one answered, man. But maybe a missing ingredient that we often find when we start talking about values, right? And sort of this common vision of the world and understanding an outlook, worldview, orientation, whatever, is the commitment to remain in community with each other, right? So how do we remain in community when we disagree? Because my good friend, one of my best friends, colleague, Steve Kaur, he says that the problems that show up between people is not the problem. That's an inevitability when you're in close contact proximity. The problem is not the problem. It's when we don't have a process to work through the problems, right? And so what we need are mechanisms that when harm shows up, when disagreement, et cetera, shows up, that we can still remain in community with each other. Right. Because otherwise you have false agreement or people just start giving up part of themselves for things that they might not necessarily totally believe in, right? Because it's safer. That's right. And the whole myriad of things, right, that make up the things that I believe in, I love, there's no one that's going to be 100% aligned on that, right? I mean, because we may share a worldview, right? So that bends towards progressive, but they may not like Star Wars. They may be a Trekkie. And then we're debating phasers and lasers, and I don't like them for that, right? (laughs) I mean, we will click down eventually to a place where we find disagreement. We may not hold that to be important, but I have found, and the more I have salt in my beard and seasoning and in this life, I have found people that I widely disagree with on what I have understood and still hold to be fundamental truths, right? And when we've spoken long enough, hopefully found humanity in each other. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, 
best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. Someone said that I thought it was a great quote too. And thinking in the context of organizations, and again, some of the danger to me of just trying to get involved with everything, right? Which is not the hallmark of a great organization is focus, right? And I think there is a push for organizations to get involved with everything these days. And I think this is where you're seeing a lot of companies get into trouble, right? When they're stepping outside of things that are tied to it. But they said, look, even when we agree on problems, we might totally disagree on the solution. (laughs) (laughs) And we see this like from a historical perspective, every time there's revolution, right? What we have is this coalition of forces that agree around what they're fighting against, but not what they're fighting for. And as soon as they achieve state power, all hell breaks. It all breaks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we see that because Peter Block, he wrote a book called Community, The Structure of Belonging, which is one of my favorite books. And what he says is that if we can't say no, then our yes is meaningless. Yeah. It ties a little bit to Lencioni's work on false agreement in teams, right? Yes. And Covey's work of malicious obedience, right? Where I'm saying yes with my mouth, but not with my heart, right? And I think as organizations, we can feel, as leaders, we feel compelled to say yes. And therefore, it loses meaning and power because we don't say no. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about change. And I think this is fascinating. Like I said, I think you went in the first episode in detail. I'm going to ask you to do a really hard thing. But can you give us a cliff notes of how you got to what you are doing today? Sort of where you came from personally, how you started in education and what that sort of brought you to today. And then we'll start to get into some of that. But I think just setting the framework would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess cliff note version is I was born from a womb of trauma. So my mother was mourning the loss of my biological father when she was six months pregnant with me. And so I was born three months later into a poor family, into a family that was really struggling with sort of just eking out a living for the world, which meant that my early background was largely unstable and largely rife with instability. And so what that created inside of me, this sort of natural young person yearns for agency and independence. I was really yearning for stability and in control in a world that I didn't feel like I had it. And so a lot of folks were using language like potential and things like that, right? I was a community lift. There was no, when people asked like, hey, who was a mentor? Who was a role model for you? There was no one person. I was too heavy a lift for one person, two people, three. I really needed the community. And so they pulled together for me. And so what they began to brainwash me into thinking was that I had some leadership potential and eventually... I saw that as a pathway by which I could get control and have sway over my own destiny. And then over time, at an early age, I was an activist and then into college and then beyond, I found myself trying to lead my own life and then invited by other people into leadership positions. So that started pretty young for me. So by college, I was already getting my 10,000 hours in and all of that. So finding my voice. I found myself in education and that's, you know, as a teacher and assistant principal, and then eventually running a bunch of schools that became a pathway for me to 
use my voice and leadership to kind of be instrumental in the world, I think. One of the reasons to have this discussion, I know a lot of your work has been in education, but having spent so much time with you and having you speak to our company, which was kind of off the chart, is that, look, all leaders have to enact change. And you have worked with some of the most challenged and troubled kind of students and youth who don't want (laughs) anyone's advice. And I think along the way have just discovered some formulas that I think really, if they work in those situations, can help anyone in a leadership situation where they have to evoke change and and their different strategies on that. So I think what you've done is frankly, like so much harder. So what... Can you share with everyone? I mean, I still haven't found a lot of things I think better than your sort of formula and change, but in all of this work, what the basic formula that you have found, if you really want to change and maybe like, maybe even share an example of one of those seemed like impossible, (laughs) Uh, who who was a little maybe like you (laughs) when you were a child. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the formula that we sort of discovered along the way, right, by looking back post-mortem analysis and sort of post-game analysis at what we were doing with people in the world was really this powerful formula for change that goes like this, connection plus challenge equals change. Now, it's been several years since we articulated that and kind of put it in the world and have had the opportunity to now stress test it and road test it. And we've yet to find sort of a contrarian experience to the truth of that, right? It feels universal and it feels natural where connection and challenge are twin ingredients. Connection is the first among equals though, right? And I think that that's important, but those two ingredients are critically important for change and real change, transformational change, not superficial. Yeah, so there's just situation after situation after situation where we've been able to sort of really think about this. I'll give you an example, one that's not related to young people because most of the work I'm doing now is is actually with organizations and entrepreneurs, et cetera. And so we were doing some work with a local law enforcement agency and leaders there and following a conversation that I had in Minneapolis with Chief Arredondo and who was the police chief during the George Floyd situation. And so I was speaking about the formula and then I came back and we were doing some work with local law enforcement leaders. And clearly what law enforcement, what police represents is challenge. It's often command and control Right, come into a situation that's out of control and exert a level of clarity of control. But what they were having was a pretty failed close rate when it came to solving crimes. And so what we were talking to them about was, one, just how does that feel, right? That you've got a 15% close rate on homicides, right? So 85% of all homicides that happen, you will not solve them, right? And so we unpacked that a little bit. So that was connection, right? To really sort of talk about the emotion of that. But then also, what is their level of connection with the community itself? And what they described was that the community is the number one decisive factor as to whether or not they'll be able to close or not, right? They've got all the CSI techniques in the world, but the community itself. Like the cooperation level. Right, the cooperation, the willingness to reach community connection, right? And ties of loyalty in order to help solve, right? Help to bring about those who cause pain to justice. And so we really began to deepen some of their ability to connect and really just be human with those that they're trying to serve, the serve part of it, not just the protect part of it. And so we introduced some questions, things like when you arrive on a scene of harm, right? Asking those who have been harmed, those victims, what's been the hardest thing for you? who's been impacted and who else and how they've been impacted, right? What they're doing is they're humanizing those who've been victimized and therefore allowing themselves to be human and seen as human in the process. That didn't change things overnight, but what it did was began to deepen their connection in the community um, in a seemingly sort of impossible relationship to navigate. So that work is still ongoing. I mean, it's a very interesting chicken and egg conundrum in different situations, right? So (laughs) with this formula, one of the things that I think about and have read a lot about is we're kind of 20 years into this experiment of a different style of parenting, I think, in the U.S. Not everyone, but actually probably in in more affluent communities, and which I would sort of call kind of 
permissive and overbearing uh, at the same time, <laughs> but very permissive, right? Not much challenge at all. Plenty of connection, but not much challenge. And like, I think we're seeing a lot of poor outcomes of that and a lot of mental health stuff that's tied to it, where again, Eric Capitula, who I had on recently, always uses the quote, we move from preparing the, the child for the path to preparing the path for the child. <laughs> and it's not going well. What does it look like when we connect, but we don't challenge or we're not willing to challenge? And do you sort of agree? I think on the educational side, this is in some forms of education, we've kind of fallen into this trap of we don't want to make it hard. We don't want to get it wrong. But then the problem is it's not like that in the real world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's the violation of the formula, right? Calling an error to the left, right? <laughs> yes. We'll go to the right after this. But what happens when we go too far left? Yeah. Right. It's not on the political spectrum, just an, an error to the left. Yeah, where it's deep sense of connection, but in the absence of challenge. I think some of that is a natural outgrowth of increasing our IQ around trauma, right? And increasing our understanding of adverse childhood experiences, and two-thirds of all folks have at least one ACEs, right, on adverse childhood experiences indicator. We have a long ways to go there to deepen our understanding, but even once we acknowledge that trauma exists, what do we do with that? How do we best serve young people and adults? Because that stuff that happens reverberates into adulthood, right? And I think some of the parenting style that leans towards the permissive is a way to save a child from the heartache, headache, right? And experiences that I experienced when I was younger as I interpret them. And so I'm going to take the pain away. The only thing is that there's a natural, like all of the movies, all of the stories, everything that we read, we have a natural inclination and affinity towards those that have challenged conflict is the premise and some of its low stakes right obviously there's some real traumatic stuff but like forgetting your cleats and if someone keeps bringing your cleats for you when you forget them you're not going to suffer through that embarrassing practice where you didn't have cleats right <laughs> exactly or bring your cleats and you're 13 years old and then bend down and tie your shoes for you right like you know what i mean and so but no what happens is that it doesn't allow the opportunity for challenge which is a hallmark principle of this journey of life. I mean, you're robbing someone of the hero's journey that is theirs by taking away. And what happens is those muscles that are naturally designed to carry the weight don't get to. So those muscles atrophy, right? There's just some natural laws in the world. I always tell my kids, good or bad, there's cause and effect of things that you do. When someone messes with that equation, it throws it off for you and you don't understand how it works sometimes. And eventually you'll learn, right? You'll learn. The problem is that you'll learn when the stakes are a lot higher, right? You know what I mean? My daughter, you know, in the middle of college, she transferred to San Diego State. She's 3,000 miles away from us at the time. And so I was trying to reach out and often trying to help in any way that I can. And I was recognizing I wasn't giving her the opportunity to eat bologna sandwiches and cereal for dinner, right? Like there's some things there that can make you, right? And I was robbing her of that. She may tell that story differently, but that's my version of it. Yeah. So. And so what does it look like for leaders who are super supportive of their team, but aren't, don't talent them, don't push them, don't create that discomfort? Like, is that almost needed? I mean, I think about everyone always thinks about the best coach they ever had. It was usually someone who was a little tough, right? Tough love. Right. Tough, but had an element to them that allowed you to remain in community with them, right? They didn't chase you away, beat you away, kick you away, right? Yeah, I think when we as leaders are showing up, right, with just nothing but connection, it one, it's not the most fertile soil for our top performers who want to be challenged, right? Because I'm looking to my left and right, and everyone gets the same dose of praise and everything else, right? So therefore, how do I know that I'm actually making a difference, right? Or I see that that really nice person over there is constantly not meeting their goals and deadlines, and there doesn't seem to be any repercussion for that. So why should I do it, right? Right. And we're holding them in community, but we're not holding them up in community to actually contribute, right? And that's really what it is. So what is the value of my contribution if contribution doesn't seem to mean anything, right? 
I think there's that. And then also, ultimately, every single leader who leans only in connection and not challenge gets burnt out. And even if in front of their people, they don't vent, they vent to everyone else inside of groups with other entrepreneurs and they get fed up and they feel taken advantage of. And it seems like anything that you put off when you then finally boils over, you let it all go from the last, we've all done this in our relationships and stuff. And you're like, and then you're talking about the stuff from nine months ago and seven months ago, right? It just seems to, when it boils over, it explodes. That's right. And so powerful leadership creates these regular intervals of pressure valves, right? Where you can release some of that so it doesn't spew on folks, right? Because you're being authentic and honest with where things stand, as well as the tough conversation around when you're not hitting it. That's the challenge. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in shopify's there to help you grow sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase that's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. So that's the left side. That's the easier. Now, to be a longer discussion, the right side, again, no political alignment in these things. We've got a lot of yelling in the world, a lot of social media, and a lot of people who think that, Malik, you're just an idiot. Let me just explain to you my perspective. You could just understand it. And they don't understand why this does not work. Right. <laughs> so take us through human biology and behavior. And look, I think there are a lot of practitioners, even you and I talked about this, who are probably not credentialed out there ostensibly trying to bring people together in organizations, starting with things that are threatening and that are separating people and that go against scientific, neurobiological, all of these principles doing kind of more harm than good. Yeah, exactly. Right. We know that when the temperature rises in the conversation, right, when the temperature increases, that it's our midbrain that's really being activated. Right. And our prefrontal cortex is flipped. So therefore, no amount of logic is going to help me to emotionally regulate. Right. You can't logic me down from an emotional dysregulation situation. Right. I need some other tools. Right. That's where mindfulness kicks in. Right. And that's where breathing and all of that. And so, yeah, I completely agree. I think we also are locating truth inside of us, right? And so I really struggle with the term my truth, right? Well, this is just my truth. Well, hold on, hold on, right? It feels like truth is really something that is not owned. It's not the private property of us, right? Of my truth, your truth, you know, okay, well, if that's true, then one plus one is four, right? And you can fly. Right, because that's your truth. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Now, you know, that's probably an understatement and not a correct and clear way to describe what I think some folks are trying to say. But my experience, my perspective, at least allows you to have some emotional distance, right, from truth that you don't own. Because if I own it, then therefore I must assert now, right, that you're wrong, I'm right, right? Even I'm right about something that I can't completely see, like the back of my head, right? And so it's my blind spot. Or about a feeling, right? Again, feelings have 
a place. They're not always accurate, <laughs> right? Again, in the, some irony, some of these, like, I could say I feel threatened by you, but like that is for all of the wrong reasons and for a whole bunch of stereotypes, right? And then the person's not threatening at all. Absolutely. And it's so subjective, right? So even notions of safety and bravery, right? Like this idea of we need to create safe spaces. While I agree that this is absolutely true, that's a trauma-informed restorative perspective, safety is subjective. I was on an airplane to New Orleans with a young lady. We sat next to each other. We were talking. She's at LSU. And we were talking about this notion of safety. And what I shared with her was, if you drop me in most major cities in the U.S., maybe not abroad, but in the U.S., I feel relatively comfortable. I can find my way around. I can navigate this. Even in what would seem to be hostile environments, I can navigate it, right? There's a level of safety that I feel. Not so much in the middle of the woods, right? Drop me in the middle of the woods. There's a scene in a movie that Richard Pryor was in with Cecily Tyson, where he's dropped in the middle of the woods, something bad happens. And that's what I think of, right? But for her, she said, that's quite the opposite. I find safety and all of that. So safety and bravery, I think, are twin sides there. And objectively, you might actually be safer in the woods. If you don't feel that way, then that's something different, right? Absolutely. And then our biography comes in, right? So historically, some folks who look like me may not have been, right, in that environment, right? So we have the biography that comes in that influences our feelings, emotions, understanding of it as well. But I think to your point, though, so when we're having these conversations around really important things, right, race, gender identity, social economic status, politics, et cetera, when we're having these, I'll call them equity conversations in many ways, it's inherently challenging. It's inherently challenged, right? The conversation doesn't always have to be challenging, but it's challenge. And it's really important. It's important often, right? We're talking about something that matters, right? Often it's a challenge, but yet we're engaging in this and there's either breaches of connection or there's no connection to begin with. And so again, violation of the formula, we have challenge in the absence of connection. And so what we've learned along the way, and this was a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, we were working with a school district in a rural area, and they were having a lot of dysfunctional relationships around equity issues. And my team came in and we trained the entire school district. And it was, relatively speaking, a fail. It was not a flop, but a fall and a fail, man, right? And when we did a little bit of the postmortem analysis, what we realized was that in most of those environments that we were coming into, we were bringing challenge about really, I mean, we were getting pushed back on the Harvard implicit bias test, right? And I mean, people walking out, really throwing down because conversations around privilege and bias and et cetera, because there was a lack of community inside of the school, there was a lack of sense of connection. And so we were pushing the lever of challenge in the absence of connection. So people were not seeing each other or hearing each other. They were hearing the challenge. And what we needed to do was back up, take a half step or a full step back and build a level of connection. But it felt hard because we have to tackle these issues and we've got to do it right now. But we didn't have the content. You didn't have the standing from a connection standpoint to do that. Exactly. And not just us, but the community itself. We weren't walking into an environment where the community had actually established the connection. So Trevor Noah, I think it was either him or or he paraphrased someone. He said that bias doesn't hold up well to proximity, right? And so proximity is connection. So we've got to figure out ways to see each other's humanity and then get into the good work of the challenge. Yeah. So taking it to a simpler, let's just say you have someone on their team and they just have a real divergent opinion and they have been sort of going at it and the leader needs to approach this person. Like, how would you suggest that they even kind of begin that conversation? So I think it obviously depends on how pressing, right? Uh, harm is being caused, right? But often it's a low level and 80% of our work is proactive. So we're dealing with that on the front end before it becomes a fire and they're chasing people out and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, that sandwich of a strength, a success, and then a challenge. And that still, I think, holds true, right? I think it's true. I think raising the issue in a way so that you can also explore with them 
Because oftentimes, unless people are completely oblivious, right, oftentimes they're recognizing something is going on here, right, that I'm not in right stand or I'm not aligned or I'm not fitting right in with the collective. And so exploring that like, hey, when this is coming up, when this is happening, how are you feeling? What does that make you feel? What's going on there? And what is hard? Those questions that we had police ask, right? Like, what is hard for you here? Right. And here's what's hard for me as I'm hearing, as I'm understanding. And your views themselves are whatever they are, right? It is perhaps in the dynamic of how the communication that's happening between you and others that is breaching connection. Paradoxically, you probably would need to listen. So let's pretend, how do I make this most simple form? Like, I think we should launch the apple and you think we should launch the orange, right? (laughs) So, and I'm just adamant on the orange and like, rather than coming in and being like, all right, Malik, like orange, orange, like, why don't you get it that it should be the orange in listening to what you're saying? It's probably like, we know, we know, we know that you're about the apple. I'm on the orange. So it'd probably better say like, like, as you know, like, I really think we need to do the orange. But I know that you're pretty adamant about the apple. So like, help me understand why the apple. I think that's part one, right? And part two is that you articulate what it means to me and also the benefits of the other perspective, right? Some folks do that, but then we need time to sit with it, right? Together with the understanding that we're going to come back not to find all the research to condemn why it shouldn't be the other way, right? But literally to honestly look at each other and say, hey, I've really been chewing on, literally, right? An apple or an orange, right? I've been chewing on this perspective to digest it the very best that I can. And here's what I know it means to you. And that's what we do in community with each other. That's what we do with loved ones or folks that we value. I understand that you believe the apple is right. So, you know, it's interesting, a layer on this. There was a brilliant professor who spoke at something I was at from London School of Economics recently. And he actually said that like, when we're making an argument and listing out our facts, we tend to think they like average out when they're kind of multiplicative in terms of like, so he's like, if you have a hundred thing and you have a 90 and you have a 50, you think your argument's like an 87. And he's like, it actually, the 50 ruins everything else. So what he was strongly advocating for in these things is to bring only your strongest points and that the laundry, if people throw out, if people can refute your weakest points, they will refute your whole argument. I thought it was a very, and he had some data behind this. And I thought it was pretty interesting because we tend to go into this lot like, and reason one and reason two. And he was like, look, if one and two are your best things, like stop there. What it also does is it gives the other person an opportunity to know you've thought about it. Right. But then we're still relying here on logic. I'm going to convince you with a loud voice and some data, right. That you were just wrong. And we know that we don't have a really good track record with that. No, people, if you understand cognitive dissonance, which is to me the most important force in the world, if that person needs a way out, you need to give them a bridge out that saves face because we don't like to do things that make us look bad. Exactly. And also let's just pulse check, right? And just on a scale of one to five or zero to 10, whatever, right? How convicted are you here with this particular thing, right? Because I can argue things that are a level two to me with fervor and passion as though this stuff matters, right? You know what I mean? Because you get into the sport of it, right? The sport of it, right? And I've got this spear and sword and I've got to use it. But when someone honestly looks at me and says, hey, speak from your heart, how passionate are you about this? And I'm really being honest and I'm not, I can actually begin to pull back a little bit. I've been really reacting to this notion, this term of devil's advocate. Folks who are really close to me know that when they say, hey, I'm going to play the devil's advocate, I was like, why are you going to be Satan's lawyer? Like, why are you going to like, just be you? Be honest. Is this right? Is this just for the sport of it? Right. Exactly. Let's take alternative perspectives. Right. So we can turn a thing and look at it differently. But let's just not engage for the sake of engaging. I think that's really interesting to how much does this matter to you? Like I joke to people all the time, like I'm an entrepreneur. I have an opinion on everything. I'm like, look, if you're asking me like red versus black sweatshirts for the thing, like I will have a, like, don't ask me because I'll have a really strong opinion, but it doesn't matter. Right. So yeah, there's some people who just get into it and like, we've done it a lot in our work. Like I hear your passion. Is this a lay on the tracks thing for you? And then people can say, you know, it's not like, I have a strong opinions loosely held. Yeah, loosely held, right. But that's a way out, right? But also that question 
can only be answered honestly if there is a dynamic of vulnerability and safety there, right? Because otherwise, I'm so far gone, I'm past the point of no return, I've got to stick to it. And it feels like every conversation I get into is a level 10. Well, if that's true, then it's like Peter Block said, if you can't say no, then your yes is meaningless, right? If everything that you talk about is so profoundly important. Yeah, look, if you really want to change someone's mind and you really think someone's important, this idea of like, they need a psychological, if you haven't studied, I mean, this is why the war in Ukraine and everything scares everyone, right? Like Putin is not the type of person who's just gonna admit defeat. Like he's just not like he needs a graceful exit. And I think what scares you read a lot of opinions is there isn't a graceful exit that saves face. Like dictators don't just quit <laughs> wars. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of the art of war in Sun Tzu. And he talks about sort of alludes to this notion of create a path of mercy, right? And then out for your enemy or totally destroy his heart and willingness to fight destroy his capacity and willingness to fight. And if this person that you're in community with at work, at home, this child, if you're not willing to destroy them, right, then you've got- And that's probably not a good outcome for people that you want to be working with versus be competing against or otherwise, right? Yes. (laughs) Or make babies with, right? Like it's not a, you know what I mean? I can't imagine anything getting more in the way than an unwillingness. Yeah, someone once said to me, the only way to really avoid the end in argument is to not begin it in the first place. And when I thought about that, when I thought about all of with my wife or otherwise, I was like, you know what? Cannot remember a time in the middle of really an argument with someone, whether it was family or friends or otherwise, they said, you know, you're right. Like, if you actually think about it, if someone said, oh, you know, with the eighth time you screamed at me and made that point, like I realized I was totally wrong and you're right. It's almost never happened. Or when it does happen, I've said those words, but it's usually just a bowing out, like a tap out defeat. Like, okay, you know what? You're right. I'm a jerk. I'm horrible. You're right. Okay. Can I get something to eat now? Because we've been talking for three hours, right? So yeah, it's not being honest though. Yeah. People need yeah, a way out. I mean, if you've actually heard, you listen to people like I had Daryl Dix on the podcast or people who have like fundamentally disarmed, like not actually, but people who like they had real, real differences with, it was almost always sitting down, grabbing a beer, the person who hated them or wanted to get like, dude, tell me like, what's going on for you? Like, help me understand this. And the person was like, you know what? You listened to me. I watched this fascinating video someone showed around an influencer and someone who was around the, the discussion around the Confederate flag, someone who had sort of burned it on a show and another person that was really upset because their grandparents had fought in the war under that flag and died. And they had this emotional conversation. They videotaped the whole thing. And he actually agreed. It was about when the state changing it. He actually changed his mind and agreed with her. And he said it was because she just actually listened to him and listened to why it was. He actually, he agreed that her pain of seeing that and one of her relatives had been killed with it, that, He actually came around to her perspective once she showed him a little bit of respect. It was just a fascinating, it was like a whole videoed conversation. And it's just not the approach that anyone takes. But when you've talked to you or anyone who's actually done this work in the real world, it's the only thing that everyone says that works. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think it elucidates this notion of we've got to clarify, like, what are principles? What are strategies and tactics, right? I think part of what we struggle with is we convolute all of them so that we elevate things that are strategies and tactics to the level of principle, which are closest to rights of values and heart's work, because any compromising of principles is an abandonment of it, right? So if I hold as a principle that I will not engage with folks who hold a particular view then sitting down with someone who does, right, is an abandonment, right, of my principle, as opposed to that I hold certain things to be really important, right, social justice, et cetera, which I do. And sitting down with someone who has a different view is maybe not a tactic that I always enjoy, right? It isn't an abandonment of principle, so therefore I can do it, right? And if I'm really 
really good at doing some of the self-work, I can actually walk away with a fuller view of humanity in that way, as opposed to a narrow view. And generally, in that example of the flag was super interesting because when both of them understood the why they had that viewpoint, right? And this is to me, people who don't agree on really different policy issues, if they actually asked the other person why they had that and where it came from, they might understand it, right? <laughs> Someone who hates entitlements might sit down and find out that this person grew up and watched their parent embarrassed getting food stamps and and wanted to, you know, otherwise and Likely, maybe somewhere else, this person finds out that actually someone was attacked and the only thing that saved that family from being murdered was someone had a gun, right? You know, on the other side. On the face value, they might not agree with the policy, but it's super interesting when you just say to someone, can you help me understand where that comes from? And there's usually like a painful story behind it. Absolutely. And what birthed through that pain was a way of looking at the world, right? Trauma restructures our worldview, right? And so if we can push past some of that, right? That's what Rumi was talking about, I think, where he says, there's a field beyond right and wrong. I'll meet you there. And I think that that's that, that place of values. And it was a Charles Bender, a friend and entrepreneurial organization that I know. And he talks about that a lot. Like, hey, what is the value here? Right. And let's look at that because we're going to probably find the common ground in those values. Right. Valuing the honoring my family. Right. But I was going to say both those people, it was about family things. Right. Yeah. But it just manifested itself. And, and if they had opposite of experiences, they might have opposite beliefs on that. Right. Exactly. And two yeah. things can hold true at the same time. I mean, it's that I can honor my family and feel really proud about legacy. And part of that legacy is actually harmful to other people, right? And cause pain. Exactly. So another quick question and start to wrap up here. I just wrote a Friday forward about how like things just feel a little hard right now. It's a little sloggy was sort of what I heard from everyone in business. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not horrible. Like it's just the tires kind of spinning in the mud. So in that sort of environment, how does a leader kind of hold the line between making people feel supported in that connection without falling into the trap of holding their hand through everything, which probably isn't going to help develop the resilience needed to kind of get through it. I would say that sometimes the slow burn and the slogginess worse than the event-based crisis, right? Because we can put that in scope. The slogginess kind of makes us even look at ourselves. I think one, the first thing is resist the urge to, to immediately go with the first thing that you think is right. Like resist that urge, right? Like I, not that our guts are wrong, but like it comes really from something else. This problem does not belong to you like your personal property. This is a community thing. So therefore, part of your job as leader is to activate the community to address this thing, right? One, by announcing, right? Like, hey, noticing this. Spoke to a lot of people this, right? So actually calling truth to power there. Also, this is an equity piece. We've got to recognize our proximity to the pain. There's things that happen in the organizations of which I lead that do not cause me the same amount of pain as they do someone else, right? Because of privilege, access to resources, all of that kind of stuff, right? So where's my proximity to the pain? I don't want to go in, pretend in false pain, right? So there's that. I think that's the second thing. And the third thing is acknowledge the feelings that you've heard, right? Like you don't even have to go so far as to validate them, but just sort of acknowledge, right? And then I think a humble thing is ask what in your mind, what info would be more helpful? Even without promising action, what info would be more helpful? Because I think that builds connection. Like, hey, what more information do you need? Sometimes that's what they need, right? Like a good friend of mine, he talks about when you're emotionally dysregulated, you've got to go mechanical. That's where you breathe, right? For me, mechanical often means Excel spreadsheets, right? Like when I'm struggling, man, I break out an Excel spreadsheet, numbers give me solace, even though I'm was never good at math, but I'm damn good with an Excel spreadsheet. But what information do you need? And sometimes a little bit more information helps them to digest things. And then I think ultimately you've got to explain the direction forward, right? You do that, you've engaged with folks, and then you explain with clarity and in simplest terms where we're going to go. And then embrace, and this is something that Heidi Hanna, who Bob, I know you know, right? Heidi was really big in my development where she was talking about oscillation, 
I think as leaders, we have to really teach that, that we are in a moment. It feels a little bit longer, but we're in a moment of whatever it is, the season, but we're going to oscillate. Things are going to pick up. We're going to be moving at a faster pace. If we're moving at a faster pace, breath is coming, right? But I think we've got as leaders really embrace that oscillation notion. Yeah, it reminds me of someone said, whether it's really good or really bad, don't worry, because this moment will pass, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, that was such good advice. I want to go out on top on that because I know a lot of leaders are struggling with that. So Malik, thanks for returning to the show. You have incredible perspective and it's always fascinating to hear from your perspectives on leadership and how we can actually invoke change that really works. Well, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. It always is with you, just being in a community with you. And thank you for the invitation, man. This is awesome. All right, we'll do it again uh, after the next pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Malik and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.